Listeners, we want to tell you about a Reformed Baptist publishing company, Free Grace Press. Free Grace Press is firmly committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ and biblical truth as expressed by the historic Reformed confessions, such as the 1689 London Baptist Confession. They seek to propagate books and tracts that are spiritually inspirational, doctrinally educational, and practically helpful for the Church of God. We want to encourage you to support this ministry by purchasing their products. So you can learn more about them at freegracepress.com. Again, that is Free Grace Press. Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. Austin McCormick here, and I have the privilege to have Dr. Richard Barcelos on the Covenant Podcast. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Barcelos. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, well, thanks for having me, first of all. Uh, I'm the pastor of Grace Reformed Baptist Church in Palmdale, California, and I also am married. I have five children and three grandchildren, uh, born and raised in California, lived in Kentucky for five years. That's where I tried to help uh, Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary develop further. and then. Um, I also teach for Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary and IRBS Theological Seminary, and I'm happy to be on the show. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to come on today, and we want to talk about your newest uh, released book, Trinity and Creation. And so uh, the title of your book, as I just mentioned, is Trinity and Creation, a Scriptural and Confessional Account. So what prompted you to write this book? And what do you mean by its subtitle? Okay. Well, um, at some point, I think around 2015, I was tasked with covering chapter four of the confession for the pastor's conference. Uh, I'm one of the co-hosts of in Southern California. It could have been before 2015. I don't know. We try to plan two to five years in advance. So, I was tasked with that chapter, and I, I think Dr. Renahan thought I was going to do, you know, like better than the beginning stuff. Um, but I wanted to, I wanted to discuss this, the chapter itself. Um, so I was appointed to it, and I started studying the issue. And not long after I started studying, I realized chapter four, paragraph one, is massive, and very important and i became further aware of how important the creator creature distinction is in all of our um, theological enterprises so i developed the lectures and as i developed the lectures i think i had four lectures i soon realized i had way too much material for a conference and at some point after delivering the lectures uh, a few men expressed appreciation for the lectures, and and I thought, you know, I have so much material, I could beef this up and send it out to some guys and see if it's worthy of of uh, publication. So that that's what I I normally do. I think I've done that every time. 
and I thought I had something I wanted to publish, I, I sent it out to several keen eyes and keen minds first. And so it went through um, about a two year process of being and, and um, adv- um, extending some of the arguments. And then, uh, then I sought a publisher. So it was as a result of being tasked with treating chapter four, the confession and the response of several men, both to the written, the, 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 le- the lectures themselves, and then the, the documents, the chapters, as I sent them out to readers. That's why I published it. Um, and then the subtitle, the, the title being Trinity and Creation, the subtitle is a scriptural and confessional account. Um, uh, it, 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 the subtitle is an attempt to encapsulate what I try to do in the book. And that is, I, I seek to account for both Trinity and creation uh, scripturally and confessionally, because I, I think we can learn a lot from uh, the confessional statements in terms of not just what they say, but how uh, it's put together, how the statement is put together, you know, the background of it would be a a hermeneutic that has been largely um, lost in our day, but it's being recaptured, and a theological method. Um, and I discussed all that in the book, so that's the subtitle. So people need to buy the book, right? Uh, yeah, I was, I was just for the listeners, I was kidding with Austin. Some of the questions I'll probably just say buy the book. So yeah, buy the book. Amen. Well, yeah, we do want to encourage you listeners to buy this book. It is helpful. And as you have mentioned now uh, in the book, you hone in on paragraph one of chapter four in the second London Baptist Confession. And so uh, my next two questions for you is what is assumed in chapter four of the confession as it relates to the prior three chapters? And also what is the theological method of the confession? Okay. Um, before I answer that, can I can I say something about you? Sure, go ahead. <laughs> um, I really appreciate your questions because your questions indicate to me that you've read the book. And it's very frustrating being interviewed about a book that you've written when the interviewer hasn't read the book. And I've had that happen before. So uh, I appreciate these questions. So the question is... Uh, um, what, what is, is assumed? Yeah, what is assumed in chapter four as it relates to, you know, chapters one through three: scripture, God, and decree. And what is the theological method of the confession? Well, what is assumed is everything. And I, I don't mean to be cheeky at all, but it's very important when we read the confession, uh, as Dr. Renahan says to read it sideways, both the backwards and frontwards from where you're reading. It assumes everything uh, before it's, in our case, chapter four, paragraph one, assumes the entirety of what it asserts concerning scripture of God and the Holy Trinity and of God's decree. And that's important because when you come to creation, um, there's not a different doctrine of God that the confession 
suddenly starts to articulate. It's, it is articulating the doctrine of God already stated in the first, in the second and third chapters. And, uh, you know, also with the, the, uh, the statement on the scriptures. So in terms of the theological method of the confession, uh, what we don't see is the behind the scenes, uh, what we might call the pre-critical method of scripture interpretation, um, which includes things that, you know, us moderns utilize sometimes, and then other things that we seem to depreciate or have forgotten. For instance, the analogy of scripture, the analogy of faith and Christ as the scope of scripture. Um, let's just take, take, for instance, the analogy of faith. The difference between the analogy of scripture and the analogy of faith is normally the analogy of scripture would be uh, illustrated like this. You're studying a passage in the Gospel of Matthew, let's say, and one of the other synoptics, or even the Gospel of John, might uh, have the same historical incident recorded. And so you utilize the other passage to help you with the passage in Matthew. The analogy of faith is broader and basically uh, in its broadest sense says, in order to understand any part of scripture, uh, we ought to utilize all parts of scripture to help us understand uh, the passage that we are uh, engaged with. And, and I think that's very important. That analogy of faith is huge if done properly. Um, it is huge uh, in order to properly formulate Christian, uh, Christian doctrine. And I, I try to, without saying by the book, uh, I, I try to tease that out and show that in the beginning chapters, uh, because it's very important um, to to realize that this uh, method that the confession utilized is actually a, a hermeneutical and theological method that produced the greatest creeds, uh, confessions, and catechisms of of the Christian Church. And without it, they wouldn't have been created. And then, so moving on to the ending of chapter one, you make some concluding thoughts, three ways to retrieve a theological method that will serve the church well. Uh, the first is to respect theological grammar of the Christian tradition. The second is to understand the difference between biblical theology and systematic theology. And then the third was to have awareness that we need help. Um, you can feel free to take as much or as little time with this question as you want, but can you briefly explain what you mean? Yeah, respecting the theological grammar of the Christian tradition, I think it's very important. Um, we have to recognize, at least we ought to recognize, we often don't, but we ought to recognize that all our speech or language has been handed down to us, no matter what subject we might be discussing. You know, if you and I wanted to talk about Major League Baseball, for instance, we'd use technical terms and phrases. You know, if I said home run, base hit, grand slam, you'd know exactly what I meant. Um, now, since this is the case, that all of our speech is handed down to us, if we want to communicate with others about God, there's already a technical language, especially for theologians. And instead of inventing 
new terms and concepts, I think we ought to engage within the uh, terminological and conceptual world, and it already exists. And if we think new term concepts are needed, to me, that seems to cast, you know, a dark shadow of doubt on minds that are much greater than ours. It basically, it assumes everyone else has been wrong on the issue of theology proper, and I'm not prepared myself to conclude that at all. I also think it's important to use the received language of theology along with the received meaning of those terms so that when we use the old language, if we use it with new meaning, we're going to confuse readers and possibly people that do that use the old language with new meaning, possibly they could be doing it to disguise novel ideas. You know, I don't know the intent of people that do that, but it frustrates me a lot to go to, you know, Muller's dictionary, second edition, by the way, it's 90 pages longer. <laughs> and, and it cleaned up some of the sloppy, I think he would say this, some of the sloppy language he had in the first edition, but it frustrates me to go there and, and find a technical term that might be used in a book that I'm reading and read his entry um, and then go back to the book and realize, you know what, this guy is tweaking the concept, the meaning of that term, and he's using it in a new way, and this is going to confuse people. Mm. So uh, we want to continue the discussion and use the theological grammar and the concepts embodied in the terms and go for it. So I, I think that's very important. And then secondly, I also think it's important uh, if we're going to help each other to do retrieval properly, we have to understand the difference between uh, biblical theology and systematic theology. Um, you know, biblical theology um, seeks to explain scripture as its storyline unfolds and is consummated in Christ. And that's fine. That's it has a limited scope, uh, its own definition by most practitioners um, limits its usefulness um, in terms of formulating um, full doctrinal statements. That's not what its intent is. Now, systematic theology mines the scripture on the given topics in order to formulate statements that reflect um, I think it's in the language of Gerard's Voss, the finished product, scripture as a whole. Even Voss uh, recognized and respected the difference between the two disciplines. And, you know, you read Voss enough, you realize he, he, he understood that biblical theology had its limits when it came to doing, let's say, theology proper. I don't know if he, I don't think he says it in those exact words, but I think if he was alive, he would say, well, of course. I think he would even tell us this. That's why I have both a dogmatics when he was a young man and his biblical theology, because they seek to do different things with scripture. So I, I, I think that's important. James, one of the reasons why I put that in the book, is I was very frustrated with people that read James Dozel's book, um, that great book, All That Is In God, 
and kind of depreciated its value because there wasn't a lot of biblical theology in it, or there wasn't a lot of, uh, you know, called exegetical theology in it. And um, it frustrated me. Um, they depreciated its value for, an, I, I think, a, a bogus reason. Um, his was more of a retrieval of older theological statements about God and comparing that with modern statements about God, both the older statements and the modern modern statements assumed a a lot of theology was going on behind the scenes. And I don't think, I think it's unfair to say the book has a depreciated value because he didn't tell us all the exegetical moves every single person he quoted in the book um, made in order to get there. So that's why I put that in there. Uh, and I think that in our day, some people have um, have exalted biblical theology to a position uh, it ought not to be exalted in, as if it was the end all uh, of you know make, making theological statements. It isn't. It's a means. It's a tool. Uh, but it's not the end all. And then the third thing I suggested in the book is that we need help if we're going to retrieve a method that's going to help the church. People are like me, um, you know, creatures of the context in which they have lived and were educated in. Um, we're probably going to have some weak spots. Uh, I think I used the example in the book of counting texts versus weighing the importance of texts. Um, sometimes, sometime in the past, I called that the concordance method of doing theology. You know, you look up at concordance, and this is just a bogus example. But for example, you you find the word for f o r, and then it's used uh, uh, eighteen thousand times. You know, in the Old Testament alone. Therefore, it must be extremely important. Um, that assumes that if you get the same concordance down and look up the word um, hover or something like that, and it's only used once or twice, it's not important. Now, the problem with that is sometimes um, scripture asserts something about God just a few times. I am. How many times does scripture assert God as the I am. And if it's, you know, less than 18,000 times, it's less important than the word for. It just doesn't, doesn't work. So I, I think we need help. Uh, how are we going to get help? Well, there's books that are being written uh, to help us to do Christian theology in a Christian manner, in a more historic uh, manner, and I think uh, more grounded in Scripture itself. And uh, I think I suggested three or four books uh, in the book to help with that. And of course, uh, I'll just be honest, I'm hoping my book would help people with that as well. Amen. Amen. Well, I, I hope that will uh, help others as well also. And uh, moving this conversation along, um, at the beginning of the conversation, we talked about uh, what led you or prompted you to write this book and your studies on chapter four, paragraph one of the confession. So let's talk about that uh, paragraph a little bit. What is confessed in that 
paragraph and what are the relevant issues? Yeah, I, I thought it'd be best just to read that paragraph and then go through it really briefly. Now, the paragraph at chapter four, paragraph one reads as follows. In the beginning, it pleased God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness to create or make the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days, and all very good. I think it might be chapter three where I where I break down this statement into its various parts. I have uh, the inception of creation indicated by the words in the beginning, uh, the ground of creation indicated by the words it pleased, the author, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the goal for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness, the essence of creation to create or make the scope of creation, everything not God, the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, the duration in the space of six days, and the nature of creation, and all very good. And I think it's like less than 50 words, and that's a mouthful. I mean, that's a huge statement that uh, Second London uh, asserts. The Westminster and the Savoys are basically the same thing, but you could write a book on that, actually. <laughs> on how they're the same? And that's what, no, on, on the paragraph. Oh, oh. Yeah, and the more I study the confession, and this this has happened over the years at this Southern California Reformed Baptist Pastors Conference, because uh, I was the keynote speaker in 2017. Other than that, most years I give one, I think one year I gave two lectures on something, but uh, every time I, I'm assigned a task for that conference, I'm amazed at the statements the precision of the statements in the confession. And what amazes me even more is the literature behind the confession that brought rise to these kinds of statements. Uh, you know, just in reading paragraph one, you have uh, creation, nothing except God it is clearly assumed there. Uh, in, the, in the beginning, the inception of creation, there was a time when things that we know as creatures were not. And um, then we have the will of God is assumed here, asserted. It pleased. And we have the Trinity, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we have uh, an act of the triune God. We have, uh, you know, the glory of God, solely deo glory here for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness, an interesting triad there, power, wisdom, and goodness, I think we might discuss a little later. Uh, the essence of creation, to create or make, which is very interesting, uh, create or make is unique to the Baptist Confession. And in the book, I show you that uh, there's good reason to believe that they are making a distinction between creation ex nihilo. The, the bringing of of 
things into existence that had no existence, and then the form of things that were brought into existence into something other than their initial form. For instance, man. Uh, God made man from the dust of the ground and breathed into him the breath of life so that this ground was formed into something that was not uh, by a divine act, but it wasn't a creation ex nihilo, at least on the uh, on the dirt side. It would already existed, and then God made it into something. That, that's in the literature uh, behind the confession and the commentaries, and fascinating to study that. So um, as you can see, this is a huge chapter with a, a lot of things that could be discussed, and I, I discussed them very briefly. I think it was in Chapter 3, just to try to tease those things out. And yeah, so let's move on to Chapter 3 as you ask the question, what is creation? So I will ask you, what is creation and why must we understand what creation is to properly think about it and its relation to God? Yeah. Um, you know, in the book, I, I believe I mentioned the fact that, you know, if you ask most regular Christians, um, you know, what is creation? They'll point to something. They'll point to an effect. Uh, but if you read the theologians, the good ones, the best ones of the Christian tradition, their answer is is a lot more theocentric. It begins with God. Uh, I have a quote here by Bobby, for instance. He says, creation is that act of God through which, by his sovereign will, he brought the entire world out of non-being into being that is distinct from his own being. Now that's a wonderful definition. It does several things. It denies excuse me. It, it denies the eternality of creation. It asserts the creator creature distinction very clearly. God brought being into being that is distinct from his own being. So God is who he is with or without creation. Hmm. And so this definition by Bob Inc., I write it through, through the rest of the book, basically. Uh, very, he begins it very in a very theocentric manner. Creation is an act of God. It's accomplished through God's sovereign will. And there is a clear creator creature distinction that must be maintained throughout all of our uh, theological musings. Um, creation is of another order of being from divine being. It's not an extension of God. Um, God is not, uh, God does not become creature uh, given creation in order to relate to or reveal himself to his creatures. Um, Another author I enjoy reading, um, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, Mascal, oh, I'm not sure, but he's, he says this, God is outside above the order of the universe and is radically different in sense from all the beings that compose it. You know, created being 
is brought into existence by God. Divine being is. Hmm. And I try to, I, I, try, I beat that drum several times in scripture because if you get that into your head, you get chapter two in your head of the confession, that when you come to chapter four or chapter seven on the covenant, um, there are some things you can't say. For instance, you can't say God willed to become what he was not in order to reveal himself as God, the divine being, um, to creatures. God doesn't add things, add features to himself in order to create and or relate to uh, his creation. As a matter of fact, I think I say this in the book more than once. I didn't tease it out um, a lot. But technically speaking, we ought not to say that God relates himself to us. We ought to say God relates us to himself. Hmm. And I'm not trying to be cheeky there. I'm trying to be precise. And I, I, I know I say this in the book someplace. I think when, when people write books about God, uh, especially theologians, they owe precision their audience. Yeah. Um, so this is very important. And, and we get this um, from the uh, fourth chapter, paragraph one, but we get it from chapter two. It's already there. God just is who he is. Um, God is God the Trinity with given creation or not. I think that's a Fred Sanders quote or something like that. But um, so there, there are two orders of being, you know, created being and non-created being, us and God. And the gulf between them um, is forever there. We'll always be creatures who derive our existence and our initial existence and our continued sustaining, sustained existence from God. So we are dependent and God is independent of the creature. He is not in need of anything from us to fulfill him, to alter him, to make him better, worse, or anything like that. So creation is an act of God whereby by his sovereign will, he brings being into being that had no being prior to him uh, enacting it. And then you ask the question, a great question, why must we understand what creation is to properly think about it and its relation to God? Now, if creation, then, is a divine effect, something brought into existence, and if creation is subsequently sustained in existence by God, then it is clearly not God. It is not infinite. It is not eternal. It is not independent, but creation preaches everything not God is temporal, um, full of change, and always dependent. And since this is so, all change must be on the side of the creature, not the creator. Mm. And once we allow creature features to back into God. Uh, I think we're on a slippery and uh, 
potentially disastrous slope. And I think that has actually happened um, unintentionally by, by well-intended you know, riders, um, allowing, allowing um, creaturely features to wash back into God and to define God based on God's acts and those recorded acts in scripture um, instead of defining God as God is in himself without without creation. For example, uh, you know, a crude example is um, um, God's wings. You know, God has wings according to scripture. Now, I don't think anyone I've ever read argues that God has literal, you know, space extending <laughs> physical wings. So they realize that's a metaphor, that's a figure of speech. It's, it's signifying something true about God, um, but something other than physical wings. You know, God's mercy toward his creatures or whatever, his protecting providence. Um, so we can't we can't just read scripture at face value. Um, we have to uh, we have to account for metaphor, and we do so in anthropomorphisms when physical bodily forms are attributed to God. We quickly most people quickly realize God God doesn't have a right arm. Uh, he doesn't have a bicep, a tricep, and you know an elbow, a forearm, a wrist, and all those things. This must be a figure of speech, and we 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 ought to do it with the passions, the anthropopathisms of scripture, the man's uh, passions attributed to God. Uh, most people, certainly throughout history, have done that. Um, so. It's important to understand that God is not creature in any sense. He is not the thing made. He is the maker. I, I think I'm quoting William Ames or somebody like that. Maintain that creator-creature distinction throughout our uh, theological musings, or else we're going to do something that's potentially disastrous. And um, actually, I deal with that in, in, in Chapter 5. I think you're going to ask a question about that too. Yeah. Yeah. And just concerning this point before we move on, uh, the pithy statement that you write in your book that was really helpful for me to grasp this point was that God does not tinker with himself in order to reveal himself. So thank you for that. And yeah. uh, we can move this conversation on to uh, chapter. Five. For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to The Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.